0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Rwanda and Uganda are engaged in a heated war of words. What are the prospects for a climb down? The Continental Free Trade Agreement is gaining steam. It recently got the necessary 22 ratifications to come into effect. Is regional integration becoming a reality? Plus, we talk about the dismal state of Africa's roads. Is there a technological solution to this infrastructure challenge? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa.
1: Relations between Uganda and Rwanda took a turn for the worse on Tuesday as Kigali accused its neighbor of supporting rebel groups trying to topple the Rwandan government. The two countries have a shared history that has alternated between friendly and hostile over the decades.
0: Since March, Rwanda and Uganda have been engaged in a serious war of words. Rwandan foreign minister accused Uganda of abducting and illegally detaining Rwandans in Uganda, hosting dissidents and sabotaging trade. The Rwandans closed a key border crossing and advised its citizens not to travel to Uganda for safety reasons. Joining me today to discuss this far-from-neighborly dispute is Judy Moore, a research fellow at the Center for Global Development and former Liberian Minister of Public Works, Dan McMahon, who is Bechtel's vice president for external affairs, and Joel Weigert, who is the principal director at Nexen and a former US diplomat. And I should just add that he's here speaking in his personal capacity. Let me set the stage a little bit. President Paul Kagame of Rwanda and President Museveni of Uganda have the quintessential frenemies relationship. Paul Kagame grew up in a Ugandan refugee camp. Left Rwanda in 1959 when they had the revolution, and he ends up getting hooked up with Museveni and Museveni's rebel movement called the NRM. First, they fight against the Obote regime, and then they overthrow that successor government, and they come to power. and Kagame actually remains within the Ugandan military, he has a senior military position, until he joins the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which, after the genocide, takes over. The two leaders have worked together um, over the intervening years, but they've also had a couple of falling outs, including in 1999 when, when they were both in the Congo and they fought over a town called Kisangani. In the last couple of years, we've started to see the tensions ramp up again. So in February of 2017, uh, a Rwanda news agency claimed that a Ugandan-backed rebel force was being set up in a training camp near Kampala. And then last year, we saw nine people arrested and charged in Uganda with conspiracy um, to kidnap and illegally deport. Uh, to Rwanda, an exiled former military officer. And then in early January, a former operative of the Ugandan intelligence agency wrote to Museveni to claim that he had been offered $100,000 to assassinate um, President Kagame. So that gets us to March, where we saw again, this war of words and the closing of the borders. And so I think we should start with the prospects for conflict. Judy, seems like we're far away from a Kisangani moment. But you know, how do you think about this?
1: I really doubt that it's going to get uh, that bad, that there will be war. I think the war you mentioned, the Africa World War Mm -hmm. that occurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo, was basically the first time we saw them actually taking different sides on an issue. But Rwanda also has a history of pursuing dissidents. There was the assassination at the... uh, Uh, the Michelangelo Hotel in Santon, in South Africa. There was the assassination in in Nairobi. And so, the um, Ugandan um, accusation of Rwanda trying to um, either assassinate or uh, extract dissidents might carry some uh, legitimacy and credibility. However, um, the both countries are too intertwined for, for it to devolve into war. The two countries are so connected that the back-and-forth movements between the country, both of them cannot really afford shutting off trade relations. So I see. I think it's going to be really difficult to see it devolve into that. I think uh, cooler heads will prevail.
0: Yeah, I think your instincts are probably right. According to World Bank data, Rwanda was Uganda's fifth biggest export market, selling about $180 million Dollars worth of goods, and Rwanda exported about 10 million worth to Uganda. So, closed borders, it's an economic cost that neither country can really bear. I do want to recommend to our our listeners that there was a, a fascinating article on Quartz Africa and on the conversation by Jonathan Belloff, and he points out that Kagame had this phrase about you can't bring us to our knees, um, which is really significant and relates to this Ki-Rwandan concept of of self reliance, dignity, and self respect. Judy, I think you're you're spot on. We've not only there's economic cost, but the region doesn't want to see this. That's so right. in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the president of Ethiopia. We have seen the president of DRC, President Chichikati, and we've seen Kenya, Kenya the president right. of Kenya, try to get at this problem set. So um, it does seem like we will walk back from the brink, but Joel, you're a former diplomat. You know, is there a role for the international community? I've seen it in the past where the
2: international community decides to go in and, and do a good thing and ends up making things worse. So my suggestion is let the region kind of work this out on its own. I think we have to be very careful about not letting the the crisis of the day kind of drown out an opportunity that's happened. Happening in East Africa right now. And I'd much rather be having a conversation about increased kind of regional power trade between Rwanda and Uganda than I do about stuff like this. End of March, there was a CEO forum. I'd be surprised if President Kagame or President Museveni, one of those CEOs, talking about this rather than talking about investments they make. And so what worries me. Isn't the fact that this diplomatic spat is happening the way it's happening, because this actually is a pretty good way to work these sorts of things out in terms of using trade as a, a signaling mechanism. What what makes me nervous is is the message it sends to the investment community and that's where where I think these guys need to
0: be more pragmatic. Dan, do you have any thoughts?
3: I think for a company like Bechtel, we're a large engineering company that has been on the continent for 75 years. We obviously conduct our political risk assessments, global risk studies, and looking at a situation like this, we first and foremost care about our personnel and also the stability of a country. So that would obviously impact our decisions to enter a country. We're currently not in either of those.
0: Well, this conversation, I think, sets us up to talk about the big news in early April is that the Continental Free Trade Agreement got its 22nd ratification.
3: The AFCFTA brings together 1.3 billion people with a combined GDP of close to $3 trillion. This agreement is expected to help Africa trade more with each other.
0: The continental free trade agreement is about regional integration, and they have 52 signatures so far, and they needed 22 ratifications for this to come into effect. Well, at least it's more complicated. They got to Deposit the ratifications, and then they have 30 days. But
1: the point is that we're gaining steam. Judy, why is this a big deal? There've always been these uh, inclination to to join the entire continent together in terms of a, a common economic area, which will first increase the, the the continent as a market in terms of a single market. But it will also mean that more intracontinental trade in goods and services would also. But in terms of negotiating trade agreements, this also gives the, the continent the power as a block to be able to negotiate. This is actually a big deal. And in an age where we're seeing more nativist and Uh, um, politics in in partner countries across the world. Maybe it makes sense for Africa to begin to look more at home, closer to home for opportunity and and, and having a common uh, um, market, having this free trade area is, I mean, there's still things to work out, right? right, but this is a really, really good start for the continent in terms of improving, especially intra-Africa trade in in goods and and services. When
0: I was in government and I was at the National Security Council, we were thinking about what the Obama strategy was going to be for Africa, and we talked about trade investment, and a really smart senior official said, it's about intra-regional integration first if we want to really unlock the potential of the continent and be attractive to U.S. businesses. Dana, is that consistent with your perspective? How do you think about a development like this?
3: I'm personally very excited, and I think um, Bechtel's been all about urbanization and economic development, um, sustainable solutions. Um, So all of this, as well as women's empowerment, would probably, Take off under a regional integration program. Um, This particular trade agreement obviously will. Um, be driven right now by the African side, but I think what's different this time around is the private sector is engaged mm. and so from the U.S. side, obviously we'll be a third party involved in some of the discussions. The timeline is tight, but um, we'll, we'll achieve what we can and just push forward and I think we commend the African states for doing so.
0: Yeah, I want to get to the U.S. role here, but uh, I rarely can do an episode of this without talking about Nigeria mm-hmm. and they have not signed it. There's certainly nowhere from ratification. And it's really hard to talk about continental integration without the continent's largest economy. So Paul Kagame just spoke about this recently, talking about that he thinks Nigeria will finally come into the fold. There's a lot of issues that are going to have to come you know, now to work out both Nigeria's signing and ratifying, but then how do you actually do the hard work of implementing there's this twist here, which is the U.S. policy, and I think this is an important conversation. The U.S. policy right now is to have a bilateral free trade agreement with a country, and I think that's a, the right goal. But you know, I've heard consistently from Africans that they don't understand why the U.S. is talking about a free trade agreement, you know, with one country bilaterally, whereas the Africans you know feel really proud of this achievement and think this is the big play for them. So, Joel, you've given a lot of thought about this. How do we reconcile these two things?
2: So, I think the best way for particularly for African audiences to understand this is to is to start thinking about what the American government should do and what the American can do in a bit of a different way. Because mm-hmm. if, if you look at the U.S. government's kind of trade um, negotiation architecture, it's pretty static. It's been static for a long time. We do free trade agreements. That's the end of the the kind of rainbow of the U.S. trade negotiation space. And we've tried to negotiate with SACU previously on an FTA that didn't go particularly well. But that was one kind of hegemonic economic player. Now imagine them trying or us or the US trying to negotiate with Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia and everybody. It, it's going to be a, a tricky type of negotiation. So I think the way to focus on the current administration's engagement on a free trade agreement is that's that's what the US government does. There's not another structure there for us and to focus on the fact that we're having those conversations with Africa that there is a prioritization of a stronger trade relationship with the continent and a recognition that AGOA isn't the future of the U.S.-African trade uh, arrangement. So I'm not sure that this, in my opinion, one FTA is not enough. but I would rather be having a conversation about an FTA than not having a conversation about any FTAs on the continent. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: I think that we just have to get to a place where we're not talking past each other, and I think, which and is I, where we are right now. And I think
2: that's the way to think about it. There is a structure to how we, as a government, have negotiated these sorts of things. Unless there's enough pushback that comes domestically, not from external, it's going to come domestically to change that structure. This is kind of this is kind of what we have now. In the future, you could see where we could try to negotiate with, with a block, with one of the RECs, right, with, say, the EAC. But I think that would be even worse right now if we started to enter into that yeah. sort of thing. So for now—
0: it's sounds gonna like be, like, bilateral or at the CFA. So what the we're doing right level. now
2: is the right space for us to be. Could the U.S. government be doing more, in my opinion? Yes, but I no longer work for the U.S. government, so I can share <laughs> my opinion a little
0: more freely now. Yeah, well, neither do I. So let me—Judy and Diane, do you have any other— yeah, I was, I was
1: just going to add that the paint still isn't dry yet on the ink of, of the last uh, ratification, but we really have to start to think about implementation. All right? I, I like to use this example, that the distance between um, Cape Town and Johannesburg is comparable to the distance between Johannesburg and Lusaka, but a truck leaving Cape Town to Johannesburg would take 17 hours, and the one leaving Johannesburg going to Lusaka would take five days.
3: Mm-hmm. It's not just
1: the quality of the roads, it's also the border. We can have this agreement, but if we're not working with the mechanisms that allow trade to occur freely, seamlessly across borders, then what's the point of having yes, this it's right? paper? Yes. and exactly, it's just it's just a paper. So while we're celebrating signing this uh, agreement, we should also begin to talk about the institutional uh, mechanisms that allow trade to actually function.
2: If the documents go in and it does come into force, it'll be coming into force. Not actually able to have an impact on trade right away. This is exciting, and, and a shout out to the Gambia for being the one that they kind of got <laughs> it done. And another, you know, shout out to the Nigerians. There's some momentum now, so one would assume you want to be part of the momentum rather than, you know, when the stories kind of move past. Um, and I think they will come on board sooner rather than later. But you're absolutely right. This is an exciting, you know, next step in a long conversation and many conversation that's going to happen, and very important conversations that are being led by the Africans, which is exactly the way it should be.
1: Roads. It is almost impossible to build a modern society, to build a modern economy without roads.
0: I am so excited to have Judy here today to talk about his challenge project on roads. Uh, A a mutual friend of ours said, "Hey, he's got this great TED Talk. You need to listen to it, uh, where he discusses you know how to unlock Africans' economies by focusing on this huge infrastructure gap that is roads." So everyone should go on YouTube and watch this TED Talk. um, But I'm going to ask Judy just to give us like the two-minute elevator brief.
1: Yes. So I actually started to think about this during the Ebola outbreak. And it happened in the peak of the rainy season. And we ran into a problem. Like in some instances, trying to isolate sick people and take them for testing. Sometimes even like vials of blood would become invalid on the way to the health center to be tested because of the mud. There was no way. So what started as a health crisis was actually an infrastructure crisis. When you think in terms of building a resilient health system, you actually have to think about access in terms of the physical infrastructure. And so I began to think, well, for Liberia, a small country like Liberia, to connect all of our provincial capitals with just a two-lane paved road is over $2 billion. That's going to take us over 20 years if we're spending $100 million a year, and we're not spending anywhere close to $100 million a year. So what can we do? We can't borrow our way out of the problem. It's too expensive. We don't have the national budgets to be able to finance this. Let's deploy technology to attack the unit costs. So I like to use the example of NASA paying between one hundred and fifty to four hundred million for a single trip up to the space uh, international space station, SpaceX comes in and it's around sixty million, right? That's 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 what happened. That's disruption, right? Can we do the same thing with roads? We could just use uh, like a chemical polymer that mixed with the soil changes the composition of the soil, and the soil behaves as if it were paved. That's it. You don't have to do much with that. And I actually tested two, two of those things. One was from South Africa, and in my TED Talk, I talk about it. It worked for like two months, right? And then the rains came, and then it washed it away. When the heavy rains came, it washed it away. And I use Norway as an example that in the 50s, half of the net road network in Norway was unpaved. It was gravel. The Norwegian government authorized or well, commissioned the Norwegian Road Research Laboratory to say, hey, come up with an alternate way of paving roads. It should be just as functional as asphalt. It shouldn't be any more expensive than maintaining the gravel roads as they are, right? It should be simple to do. It should use local material. They spent two years, and in 1965, they came up with something called the outer seal. So my, my thing is, if Norway, simply using Norwegian engineers, could come up with something in 1965, what if we put out a challenge to the rest of the world to come up with something? And you win a prize if you, if you do this, but this is how we'll be able to tackle this problem.
0: I love it, but you have to talk about uh, what's happening in the Northwest.
1: Once I start to go into this thing, I begin to investigate what's happening elsewhere. And so there are about seven national laboratories that are owned by the US government and managed by the Department of Energy. One of them is in the Pacific Northwest. They have uh, created a self-repairing cement. It's pretty awesome. So if a wall, or foundation is built with this self-repairing cement or a sidewalk, if a crack appears in it, within 12 hours, the crack will heal itself. They've gotten it to work at high temperatures. They're trying to get it to work now at ambient temperatures because it is the heat that triggers the self-repairing mechanism. Because I'm thinking about bridges and roads across Africa, where there's not a high-maintenance culture. And some of the places are remote, where it'll be able to fix itself without people actually coming there. But they weren't thinking about that application when they did this. It was for nuclear sites, right? And so, but once I, I brushed the idea to them, like, hey, yeah, this makes sense. However, they don't have money to go to the next stage. I like to use these statistics. Only 47% of the roads on the entire continent are paved. Of the total amount of paved roads on the continent... 30% is in South Africa alone, right? And so you can imagine that in a, in a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, there are about, well, Kinshasa, city of Kinshasa, between 11 to 13 million, there are 60 meters of paved road per 1,000 people. It's like, it's mind-boggling to even think about it, to even think about it. But it, it became even more pressing when we saw what happened with cyclone, that wiped out overnight $1 billion worth of infrastructure in that part of the continent. If we had something that was simply basically treating the soil and you can still get the roads to function as they were, we could easily rebuild that infrastructure. And so I'm going to keep talking to everybody until I find the person who who's Who's interested in doing a a, a, a prize challenge like this? I even talked to Deloitte because they had written a whole book on how to run prize challenges.
0: I wanted you to tell that story because this is not just some dream that's come out of your head. Like mm. there is this sort of the crumbs of of the science there that we could pursue. So, Diane, Bechtel is an infrastructure That's
1: right. company,
0: so yeah. you don't have to sponsor the prize challenge. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I mean, how do you think about these issues and this idea that he's that he's bringing Oh, up? it's
3: exciting. I think um, our company and, and uh, many others are constantly innovating. In Africa, we have a new social impact company that we recently launched, mm-hmm. which actually uh, looks at resilient communities. Mm-hmm. And so communities that are impacted by extreme weather patterns, which seem to be happening more frequently, frequently um. And Mozambique is a, a perfect example. Um, we obviously Bechtel is um, experienced in the reconstruction efforts across the globe, um, but I concur that you know this the the road situation and the infrastructure gap in Africa um, needs to be addressed. And um, the technology is exciting. We'd we'd love to work. You know, a lot of young people have great minds and ideas. We have a number of STEM programs that we work with women, I mean girls and boys and and they come up with wonderful solutions. So maybe we should do something.
0: I'm just gonna be flat out and champion this. I think the Trump administration is focused on trade and investment, maybe even more than its predecessor administration. So this is entirely consonant uh, with that vision and its US companies and technology leading. It's also essentially what the OPIC Connect Africa is about, right, Joel? So. Uh, you know we're still waiting to hear more about what Prosper Africa is about, uh, which is supposed to be the administration's signature program. But this could be a good fit, right? I'm leading the witness.
2: I think this could be a good fit. I mean, sometimes these types of problems are are the hardest to solve because they don't fit into the nifty funding baskets that other ones do and the way that Connect Africa does and the way that what OPIC's looking at, you know it has a bit of a different flavor to it. But these are the types of conversations that we should be having. And, and for what it's worth, if you were to start a a Kickstarter or you know, a, I don't have cash anymore, but my my Venmo's out to make a donation to this sort of a conversation, and so you should put something out there, and I think you should document the conversations you're having with these different organizations. I think something's gonna give in this space, it has to. I mean, if you look at some of the MCC programs that they've had, and, I'm, and one that I worked on um, in Tanzania, was on feeder roads. They recognize that if agricultural value chains are going to work, Feeder roads are critical, right? If if we're going to have, if the Gates Foundation's going to do all these big health investments and feeder roads don't work, they're not moving their commodities in the health sector out the way that they need to be.
1: Well, and then one of the reasons why I thought this really made sense in terms of um, the, the U.S. administration, the, the U.S., uh, the Build Act was meant to, to a certain extent, counter what China is doing in Africa. And and China is a massive player in African infrastructure right now, especially big civil works contracts on roads. And 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 but that presence has meant that African countries have becoming have become more indebted. Um and uh, in place in Zambia, some of the roads they haven't even gotten out of the um grace period of the of the loan and and you begin to see the roads deteriorate. I think this is an opportunity, but What's happened is because in the West, where most of the research in transportation technology is happening, it's no longer about access, right? It's about things like safety. So what we're seeing in terms of technology is paint that lights up at night or using uh, roads that uh, absorb uh, light from the sun and then generate electricity and stuff like that's the kind of stuff we're seeing. Where in a place like Africa, we're looking at basic access, that the road actually works both in the rainy and in the dry season. So I think it's an excellent opportunity for the administration. I think it's an excellent opportunity for American science changing the world. I'll just add
0: single note on this, which is soft power. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that
0: that's a place where we probably aren't thinking enough and more creatively about. There's a conversation about competing with China on actual infrastructure and economics and military, but man, this is our strength is soft power. A new way to do roads from the American ingenuity and world-class engineering, that's a that's a huge win I mean everyone wants to talk about a Marshall plan all the time like mm-hmm. I, let's talk about roads right that's that's better than you know throwing money at this problem that's a legacy that we can have that I think would uh, renew our soft power well and let's be excited about the fact that we ended this conversation with an opportunity Jed, you're
2: absolutely correct the US government should be paying attention to this and how great would it be if USAID or another organization started doing a regular set of challenges and this one should be the first one that they take oh, on. I
0: like that
3: this particular area of of roads, Obviously, Bechtel has a lot of experience and we're on board. Count count on us as a partner and we're up for the (laughs) challenge.
0: (laughs) Well, everyone, thank you so much. We will see everyone in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org/Africa. Thanks.